that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola, here with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, catching up on a lovely summer's day, and we've got a great episode coming your way and a topic that uh, I'm pretty excited to talk about and one that I think is going to interest a very diverse segment of our audience. I think we're going to get a lot of different aspects to the conversation today with our guests that are going to have interest for all kinds of our listeners, so I'm very excited about that, and Pat, what's new with you? you we're going to be uh, out tonight in Bensonhurst. We've got uh, Santa Rosalia tonight. True. It's going to be quite a night out there tonight, celebrating the patron saint of Palermo. And then I'm I'm heading off on the road for Palermo uh, in a couple of days. When do you leave? I'm leaving Monday. Monday. Oh, wow. You leave Monday. But not, Monday's not the first, right? No. So you're... I thought you were leaving September, but you're leaving the, really the last week of August. Yeah, last couple. I'm missing uh, Labor Day weekend here, which, you know. The one benefit is Italy probably will have cooled down a little bit because they've had a very hot summer. Oh, it's been, everybody tell me it's been brutal. Uh, I'm not looking for, I mean, I'm looking forward to going. I haven't been in a long time. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be, I mean, Sicily cools down last, of course, of everywhere. So it's going to be warm. Uh, will you be in Sicily? I'm going to start off in Sicily. I'm working on this project with Dolores. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Dolores and I have this uh, project for her platform, Bella Figura, and all this stuff that I've been helping her with. And Now, is Dolores going with the whole family, with the baby, her mother? She's taking uh, the baby and Drew are coming. Her mother's not coming. And uh, I was supposed to take Nicole and Gia and the whole family and everybody because, you know, we're going. Then we're going to Alyssa Scotty's wedding in uh, in Tuscany. Oh, that's right. Connect, yeah. connect, connect the dots. Yeah, so I was going to spend two weeks filming in Sicily and then two weeks with Nicole and Alyssa, who's uh, for the audience. Alyssa's actually been on the show before. We had a great night conversation with her, a real active young Italian-American who happens to be my... Who was Alyssa on the show? I don't remember. Early on when you and I got active with it, we recorded her in my kitchen in Manhattan when I still lived in Manhattan. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's like it might be a that lost is, episode. Oh, I think that's a lost episode. I don't even know if we used it. Yeah, I, I think we did. I think we talked about Sanguinach. I think she was our guinea pig. That's terrible to use that racist comment. <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. She was our test. Our you test. Can't say that. Our lab. Um, our lab rat. Right. Wow. That is so long ago. And she's got her family from Naples coming up to Tuscany to the wedding. So I'm going to get to meet all her family from Naples. And uh, she should got married in Naples. That's what I don't even start. That's what I, I said. Why are we doing this Tuscany thing? Ah, you millennials. <laughs> you can talk to your blue in the face. You should have told them that Instagram, the Instagram pictures come out better in Naples. And you might have had a shot. They probably do, too. You know what I think to non-Italians, our opinion means more than Italians. Probably true. That's fair. Yeah, because how can you tell another Italian? Why listen to us? Ha- yeah, why listen to us? You, you got shame, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to be there a lot. And I, I thought Nicole would and the baby would be able to come with me the first half with Dolores and, you know, my godson Angelo and Drew and everybody. And then... Nicole started this new job, and, they, you know, all the schedule changed. So you're going to be in Italy for two weeks alone? Well, now it all changed. I'm going to be in Italy filming. Instead of two weeks, we're going to be filming for a week, and then i got to come back and fly back. Only you. Yeah, and i got to I got to travel with the backpack. Why? Because we're going to the islands, Salicudi. Dad, and are Sal- you serious? Yeah, I swear to God, I can't bring the big luggage because uh, the That's ferry. That's not true. It's Italy. That, no, it I means, mean, yeah, they'll it means get it you, there. you didn't pay enough. You got if you sent somebody <laughs> the right around a month, please. No, Dolores says to me, you know, Ali Cootie's like the smallest of the island. She goes, when they went, because it's where Drew's family comes from. She said, when they went, the only way to get your luggage up the mountain or whatever it is, I don't even know what to expect. She said, is either there's like one golf cart or a donkey. So I said to myself, you know, I'm going to be there in a production capacity. I'm not going for fun. I don't need to, I'm not going to be on camera. I don't need any. You know, fancy clothes, no meetings. So I'm like, let me just put it in a backpack because, you know. Yeah, but you're a millennial. You can handle I can't do backpacks. I, I need big suitcases. I go around the corner, I get a, a steamer trunk. You, I was going to say, I've seen you with stuff that looks like it came off the Orient Express. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know. I you take steamer trunks when I go. <laughs> yeah, you I ain't going to have something on a donkey going up a mountain in Sicily. Not happening. How are you going to fit all your clothes in a backpack? I'm going to. You and you're know. out. Listen, there's a whole crowd of you out there. You're going to send information. You only bring two pairs of underwear with you. You wash one in the sink the night before. That's not me. Save yourself the email. 
No, that's not you. You that's you, not. I bring quadruple of everything, change of clothes for twice a day. I bring a steam. I really do bring a steamer truck. I know you do. I mean, you had a custom one made. Yeah, it's yeah. a great, right. fantastic <laughs> luggage. Yeah. I could have been, been on the Titanic. Yes, yes, you could have. You guys know how sick I am. I have my own coat of arms. They don't know that, but that's another story for another day. But I got luggage. Who did I get the luggage from? That big, huge trunk? Canada? No. No. Where did it? my brother My brother found it? Oh, oh, penguin. Penguin, yes. I have a huge penguin case. And I got it in the blue that matches the back of my arms. And I was going to have the gold put on the front, like customized. As that's took our phone, especially when you're traveling. <laughs> the noble you're gonna, trunk. You're going you're gonna, to, a noble trunk is just. <laughs> but I've traveled with you all over the, the country of Italy, all over Who the U.S. Attention? You, first of all, you're the last person I know that shaves every morning religiously. Every single day. Yeah. Every single solitary day. So your, your toiletries are important. And you default to a suit and tie. That's your default. If we have any kind of meeting, like I'll throw a yeah, correct. blazer over slacks and a shirt. You, no, you are suit and tie. You've got the everything coordinated. So, yeah, you're very you're particular about your fashion. I'm either in shorts, and a T-shirt, yeah. or I'm dressed. But I come from 3,000 years of Catholic school. Yeah. 12 years that I was in a suit, I had a tie and a shirt on my whole life. Yeah. From first grade all the way till I graduated high school. That's why when I started college, I was all thrown off because I never had to dress myself. Not physically dress myself, but figure no, but, out yeah, like, wearing clothes. Coordinate. So if I asked my grandmother to dress me, she would address me. That's how I'm <laughs> I feel like, yeah, like the royal dress. You know, my grandmother, they're going to get kicked out of this. My grandmother would lay my towel out in the morning. Oh, yeah, I can believe that. And she would lay my underwear out on the bed <laughs> while I was taking a shower. And then she would put the toothpaste on the toothbrush for me. <laughs> that's honest truth. That's so great. That, that's. I was raised to be a prince. I don't have the title, but. Yeah, that's the Italian grandmother. That's the Nona, right? That's how everything goes. I mean. I was mentioning that one time. My mother said to me, the reason she put the toothpaste on a toothbrush for you was she thought you wasted too much. <laughs> all those this. all those years I thought it was like tender loving care. No. That my the water be in my glass and the toothbrush on top of it. And then I found out that it was depression. It was era. a it was a depression era rationing of toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. right. Yeah. But you Santa know, Rosa, we're going to Santa Rosalia tonight. She's she's patron of um Samango, our people. She's patron oh, yeah, of that's right. And she's patron of another town in the Chilento. She I mean now she predominates Sicily, correct. I mean, for me, it's a big deal, Santa Rosalia, because, you know, it's my, my Sicilian side comes from Palermo. My great-grandmother was uh, named in her honor. She's Rosalia. So it's always been a patron to my mom's side of the family. And to be honest, I have not been to the feast in, gosh, probably 15 years, even all those years that I was back in Brooklyn. I just, you know, go into Bensonhurst to do things here and there, but have not made my way back to the feast. And so... I'm excited. Roe is the Grand Marshal this year, so that's awesome. That feast was at its peak in the Saturday night feed for years. Yeah, big time. And it's funny you say that because our guest today he actually grew up in Bensonhurst. He's a Sicilian-American, and he's here. It's funny how all these conversations swirl. So he's a Sicilian-American from Bensonhurst. And as we're talking about dressing ourselves and traveling to Italy in the clothes we wear, Salvatore Giardina has spent 30 years in men's tailoring and clothing industry between the United States and Italy. And uh, he's here today to talk to us about not just the industry today, but its past and future and kind of where it's going, because I think it really does cover a diverse segment of our audience. The idea, not just from a fashion perspective, but from a business perspective, from Italy's economic health, how much it means to it. So I'm really excited to introduce Sal. Sal, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure being here. And you were given a thumbs up on camera when we were talking about the Saturday Night Fever days. Was that your time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the I remember going to that feast every day, you know, you always right before Labor Day. And my friends and I would go down and remember doing the raffles, uh, all the games. Uh, they, would, they would give you this cheap sangria wine as a gift <laughs> or like a prize could you imagine back then yeah no back then i mean they were still doing greased poles at a lot of fees back then the the legal well, the uh, greased pole still survives in some places yeah. yeah it does it does that's a whole other episode i gotta imagine the legal risk that comes with having guys climb up a greased pole is scared off a lot of people 
Yeah. I, um. Don't ask. Don't tell. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah. No lawyers know that there's a grease poll out there. I don't know what you talk. I mean, it's a poll. I don't know what they do. With <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah. But I can imagine that was a, a glorious time to be a Sicilian American in Bensonhurst for sure. Yeah. During the Saturday Night Fever days. I mean, uh, it was you were either disco or rock. Uh, the majority of people were with disco. I was happened to be into new wave music at the time. So a little bit of an outcast. That was a little revolutionary for those years, especially in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. That was like trend setting. How did you go from Bensonhurst and the Saturday Night Fever era <laughs> into textiles and men's fashion? How did, how did that, you make that uh, career move? Well, it kind of segmented into uh, the U.S. Navy. You know, I grew up on my grandfather's lap and my grandfather was... Um, a, mar- a merchant marine, uh, I wouldn't say sailor. He owned two ships with his brother. Oh. The first ship was torpedoed off of Sardinia. Wow. Which, which I just found the location through the help of a, an Italian naval officer that served on my ship. Wow. And it was in my mother's family line from the 18, early 1800s. So in Sicily, it was, you were either a farmer or in the merchant marine. Sure. Because the roads were so poor in Sicily. It was actually faster to get around on a ship. You know that you want to hear something that you bring that up? Their Bourbons were criticized um, before the quote-unquote unification of Italy of having impeded progress because they had not invested in a railroad system. And remember, Portici and Naples was the first place in Italy to have a railroad. They figured out very early on that their merchant marine was so efficient. It was quicker to get a ship from Bari to Naples than it would be to get a train across the same distance. So they were the, 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 they were the, they were the world standard merchant marine. Where's your family from in Sicily? Uh, Pozzallo, Sicily, which in the province of Ragusa. So it's the closest point of land to Malta. You know who's from there? Dr. John Rosa, who's, uh, I don't know if you, have you met Dr. Rosa? No. He's a Constantinian knight with us, and he's a uh, member of the board of directors of the National Italian American Foundation. He's on the White House Council for the Opioid Crisis. He's uh, an integrative medicine, world-renowned expert, and he's from Pozzallo. He, he's very, very proud of that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, we, we are. It's a, it's a maritime school. In fact, they even have a maritime high school, which my, my first cousin is an English teacher there. Huh. I have a lot of family still there because I'm first generation. My parents immigrated to Brooklyn. But to answer your question, uh, growing up on my grandfather's lap, after he retired from the maritime service, he came to Brooklyn to live with us for a while. And as a young child, uh, he would show me how to sketch tall ships because his ships were sail ships, you know, with the outriggers. And the stories that he told me, he actually collected, he gave me this jar of coins. And these coins were of countries that no longer exist. And looking at these coins told a story of all the places he had visited. Figurines he'd bring back, these beautiful works of art from South America, hand-carved statues. And I realized that I wanted to travel the world, experience what he had experienced, but I wasn't wealthy, so I couldn't go on these, you know, one-year sabbaticals. So the easiest way to do it was to join the Navy. And it was really funny. My father was against me joining the military, except the Navy, because it was something from Pozzallo that we were all service to the sea. Wow. So he, he really understood that. He, they were okay with that. So um, I signed up as a navigator. I was a quartermaster. That was pre-GPS days, you know, because of my age. And this was 81 to 85. And... I was I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was a 4-0 sailor. The, in fact, I'm still good friends with a lot of the crew members on Facebook. The captain of my ship is a good friend of mine. And traveling around the world, it, it was it was really an excellent experience. I not only knew Italian from my parents, I studied Spanish in school, took six years of Spanish. So I became the ship's translator when every time we went to an Italian port with the captain, with the officers. In fact, they used me to defuse a situation in Capri. Huh. A few sailors, you know, sailors, you're going, I never understood this, but then when, when you're on a ship, you understand why. I mean, you're, you're being assigned to an area. We were going to Beirut, and then we heard all about the explosions, the terrorism, and we were going to be in Beirut 
you know, guarding the U.S. embassy. Our, you know, we were supposed to stay in a 10-mile box, and we were there just to protect the U.S. embassy in case things just really fell apart. So knowing that, we were in Capri, Naples, and some of the sailors you know, had a little bit too much to drink and didn't pay their bills, walked out of the restaurant. So the guy's screaming, like, you know, these people are not paying the bills. And, and then the officers came to me. We had Lira at the time. They said, hey, Sal, we need to really defuse the situation. Uh, just offer them double the, the bill. So whatever the bill was. I, and I would say, hey, I, I apologize on behalf of the United States Navy in, in my Sicilian dialect. <laughs> and they would say, hey, are you Sicilian? That's <laughs> I could tell by your dialect. Of course. And and then, and you know, once they found out, oh, you know, they warmed up. And, and he said, look at the bill. It was like 80,000 lira. Which is like 35 cents at the time. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I just like, hey, I just just gave them double the, the amount. And he said, hey, can you do me a big favor? I said, sure. He goes, do you have any M&Ms? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. He goes, I'm trying to get M&Ms for my kids. I said, sure. Um, do you want plain or peanut? <laughs> Apparently, M&Ms are really hard to get back then. Wow. So I radioed to my ship to bring them two cases of M&Ms, plain and peanut. That's great. And he became like our best friend. <laughs> M&M diplomacy. That's, That's right. amazing. But wow. yeah, I gave, a, I gave a Veterans Day lecture at my church recently, and I tied in that story to my father. During the invasion of Sicily, my father was one of those kids that got received chocolate from the GIs. Wow. And then this was, you know, full circle. That's amazing. You think about that relationship. Yeah, yeah. My father told me stories about the invasion of Sicily. Uh, that southeast part of Sicily was a hotbed of activity. And then uh, people still find fragments of shell casing still when they farm. Wow. And uh, so anyway, to, to answer your question, I opened up a book on careers in the United States. Um, I enjoyed traveling, enjoyed visiting all different countries, uh, understanding cultures, working with different peoples. And what is a career that affords me to travel, but yet still be based in New York City? And it was the textile and the apparel industry. Uh, and it was true. So I was went to FIT, applied, was accepted. Uh, the captain actually had asked me, they pick 80 sailors a year to go to the Naval Academy, promising sailors. And wow. I turned them down. I was almost considering it, but it's it's a really difficult life at sea. My grandfather told me stories of how many months away they were at sea. My grandmother would say, you know, they'd be gone for seven, eight months. Yeah. In today's standards, it's difficult. Sure. And so I uh, started school, knew nothing about the fashion industry, textiles, but I put my heart and soul into it. And then six years later, they had asked me to teach a class. And I said, I never took any classes on teaching. They said, you know a lot about textile sales, so give it a try. Here's the syllabus. And that's a class you still teach? Or... Yeah, yeah. Wow. How about that? I actually write curriculum for the school as well. It's funny you say that because my, my wife made the transition from auditing to fashion, and now she's in this sourcing and textiles, and that's what she does. And you think somebody goes to school for fashion and they just sort of draw and come up with, you know what I mean? Like, uh, what's the majority of, yeah, yeah, wacky things to do, but like, so much of what she did was technical and the weaves and the materials that go into this stuff. I don't think we, particularly in an age of fast fashion where we throw stuff out, you know, we get these disposable clothes. I don't think people spend time thinking about the material that they're using, how it's sourced, where it comes from, how it impacts the environment, the economy, their own experience of it. I mean, there's, there's so much engineering to this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, and the engineering is incredible because fashion is all about consistency because you want to make sure that the fibers are consistent. If the fibers are consistent, the yarns are consistent. And then if the yarns are consistent, the fabric is consistent. You know, when you have defects in fabrics, it's because there's deformities either in the yarn or in the fiber. And how do you uh, make sure you have consistency is through engineering and making sure you weed out natural fibers that are consistent in length and width. Same thing with synthetic. Synthetics are a little easier because you can regulate how thick or thin the fiber will be in the length. But the challenge is always on the natural fibers, you know, because it's a living, you know, whether it's a plant or an animal, uh, they have 
different thicknesses. You know, even a sheep will have different thicknesses of wool depending on the part of the sheep. Hmm. So it's sort of like you have a cow, you know, for the vegans out there, I apologize. But when you, when they cut up a cow, there's all different cuts of meat, right? Yeah. Tender, tenderloin. Uh, the same thing with the sheep, the different parts of the sheep on the wool is a little thinner, a little thicker, depending on how the sheep is raised and in the environment helps a lot. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, as I understand it, right, as somebody who spent many, many years as a professional wearing a suit every day, and this goes for men's fashion, women's fashion, everything, right? The kind of common understanding was that textiles from Italy are some of the highest quality in the world. But can you explain to us what textiles actually do come from Italy? Because not everything comes from Italy, right? Like you're not getting Italian cotton and things like that, are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you are. Yeah. Yeah. So what, yeah. what comes from Italy? What Like when we go out and people go out and buy their clothes, if you want to buy Italian sourced textiles, what are you looking for? You know, what first comes, like in my industry, in men, the f- what first comes to mind is um, wool. And so even, even though the wool is the sheep are not in Italy, the sheep are generally raised in New Zealand or Australia. And a lot of the Italian mills will actually own sheep farms in Australia to control their supply chain. Wow. Yeah. That's very Italian. I'm not, I'm, yeah. it's amusing, but it's not surprising if you know Italy. Yeah. And the same thing with cotton Albini, which is one of the mills we had visited in June. They own several cotton farms, like in Egypt, for example, because they know that in order to guarantee your supply chain, you need to go to the source. And because if you're relying on a country like what's happening now with China, where people are relying on China, then you've got the COVID crackdown, you've got the government behaving badly. And all of a sudden, people that were relying on China are experiencing supply chain problems now. If you have your own farms, you can control everything. Like going back to China with the Uyghurs. Now, when you buy fabric from China and it's cotton, you have to make sure that it's not from Western China that could have possibly been made in a concentration camp or people who were in turn. How sick is it that we're even having this conversation? Well, you know, that in, people, that's what I'm saying. How sad in 2022. That you have to be careful you don't source your cotton from a concentration camp. The fact that you even have to think about something like that is just sad. You have to. You have to, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, sure. And 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 buy, and that's why people say, well, you know, Italian fabrics are expensive. Well, there's a guarantee from fiber to fabric that not only are well-qualified, well-paid people processing the fabric, it's you know eco-friendly in certain t- in certain respects, and it's sort of like buying DOC and DOCG wines. Yeah, you know that's a very successful vetting process, and the fashion industry is starting to use that. People got to realize that Italy costs money for a reason. Absolutely, and when you calculate the Italian product you're getting, it's so much cheaper at the end for what you're getting. Your return on investment, you, the cheaper product you're buying from, you know, Western China, it may be very cheap. But when you calculate what you're paying for the Italian product, um, you're paying more, but the quality is a million times better. Absolutely. Uh, I tell my students, it's like an insurance policy. You know, you put Italian fabric in a garment, the quality is there. It's going to last longer. You could wear it more often. And it's one less thing to worry about. And if you're an apparel designer, You've got other issues to worry about. So put that problem to rest by buying better quality fabrics. And there were companies in the past that were, I don't want to name names, but these are large companies, apparel companies that are online. They were buying fabric from Asia. Yarns are breaking. 
people returning the garments. So what happens is it's not only a financial loss, it's a loss of reputation. Yeah. So all of a sudden your customers are like, you know, what are these people selling me? This apparel company then went straight to Italy and said, look, I, I can't pay the full price, but I could certainly give you half a million meters and we narrow it down. We're not going to choose uh, complicated patterns. We'll choose solid patterns. We'll make it easy. They were able, the Italian mills were able to negotiate a, a better price and the quality problem disappeared. You know, it's funny you talk about the mills because this is something I'm learning from Nicole's experience, right? We, we don't think about this when we buy clothes. Like you say, it's got to be sourced, either natural or synthetic. It's got to be standardized. It's got to be woven into a material. Even weaving the materials nowadays, right, because there's so many diverse materials, so many blends, you need very specific machinery for this stuff too. And I didn't know any of this. Like, you know, she's she's working for a company now that creates products, primarily socks, with Peruvian alpaca, and that's like their big product. But there's only so many mills around the world with the machinery capable of either weaving the alpaca into uh, usable material or constructing the the stitches necessary for these things. And she was telling me that one of the mills out there in the United States could only find the machinery it needed for these very complicated uh, processes in Italy. And eventually the Italians actually bought this mill and just moved a bunch of Italian executives and, and workers over and because they were supplying all the machinery. But another area that you don't think of around Italian excellence is is in machine making and in creating these these mills, these machines, the sewing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For example, uh, making denim like today with all the advanced Italian machinery. And, and now there's a big push because of the problems of covid and supply chain. Now with the advanced Italian machinery, I can make a pair of jeans sewing wise in five minutes. Wow. So now the reason why jean uh, making denim overseas was profitable is because of the low weight uh, uh, the amount of time it took to sew coupled with low wages now you've got denim that could be made with low skilled labor so you don't you can literally get someone off the street and train them in two days to use this machine and make a pair of denim in five minutes and a lot of companies like in germany are buying this machinery and already making denim say back in germany and those are italian machines Italian machines, yeah. That's an area that we, Pat and I had a conversation with the Council General in New York a month or so ago about something similar and the idea that, like, you know, people from both the general public perspective as consumers, but also in manufacturing, you know, startups and things like that, I don't think they realize how much impact Italian ingenuity has on all of these different stops along the supply chain, you know? I mean, that's an area that Italy is incomparable around the world in creating these machines and out thinking the problems of, uh, of supply and of, of production. It's a huge part of the Italian economy. Oh, absolutely. And then there's one, uh, one silk mill in Como called Rati and Rati sort of kind of developed a system that made them permanent. In other words, weaving say silk in Italy is still is expensive. So what they do is they get the silk fabric imported and what they do is they print in Como. And what they do is they assign a designer to a customer. And these people make for all the top level names of, of Milan, Rome, Paris. You know, when you walk down Fifth Avenue on those high-end boutiques, chances are that those scarves were probably made by this company. So what they do is they assign a designer. They sit down with the client. And what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking of, like for example, one client had this idea of a particular event. So the, the designer of the mill sits down, sketches out what they believe is the interpretation, and then the client approves it or works with it and says, you know, okay, let's let's change this, let's change that. That could never be done, say, in Asia, because what you're doing is you're relying on Italian creativity coming from the Renaissance. Yeah. So that could not be outsourced. That design and that way of producing these garments or accessories is so unique that it's impossible to get that sourced overseas. Something you make me think about when you say that, right? This idea of Italian creativity that uh, I think Barzini called that fine Italian hand, you know? Mm -hmm. One of the areas that we're always reading about and hearing about, particularly in menswear, is the Italian artisanal tailoring, right? I always tease Pat because... We 
have a friend in Naples who's a master tailor, and for years he would say to us, oh, you know, you have to take the time, and next time you're here, I'll make you a suit. It's going to be better than anything you've ever had. And I'm not a patient guy. Like, I, you know, for me to sit and be measured, and I just I can't do that multiple times. Pat, you love anything custom made. You have the patience for it, right? Shoes made to measure, suits made to measure. But you went to Don Salvatore Argenio. You had the patience. We were there together. You got measured for the suit. Yeah, he's my he's my tailor of choice. Yeah, but it's like it's like indestructible that suit. It's magnificent. I mean, pull, pull, pull you put the horns. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're gonna rip you. You're gonna split That's gonna your hands. Rip in hand. I know, but it is. It's a it's a totally different product. Oh, though. here we go. No, it's the worst suit ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, hold, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah hold off my the horns. Miss, yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. Oh, you yeah. got a great suit. Oh, it's so indestructable. <laughs> yeah. And tomorrow will fall apart. I'm not answering that question. Okay, Don't, uh, you could go off. The, uh, no, no answer on the question. That's a Maloike. I sorry, I, I'm Maloike. Your suit. Let me just say. Oh, I'm getting like chest pains now. I think the Italians do it better than anybody. But, you know, Sal, you're talking about these machines that can make a pair of jeans in five minutes. Where is that part of the Italian process going? That the tailoring, the the hand sewing, you know, I know in high fashion. I still that... can't breathe over those suit comments. <laughs> I got to run upstairs and check. <laughs> Probably ripped in your head. Yeah, it fell off the hanger. Yeah. yeah, thank you. <laughs> The two uh, Sicilians sticking together. And I'm, out, <laughs> I'm out in a dinghy in the middle of the ocean. You're, you're, uh, and you're about to be oh, out one Neapolitan suit. I can't. I but can't. S- tell us, Sal. Uh, really. <laughs> tell us about the the, the future of, of that part of the business. Well, you'll always have the the automated mass produced say denim. I mean, there's there's a market for that. You know, there are there's a segment of the population that will not purchase like you know eight hundred dollar jeans. So. The advancement in machinery is needed to produce the the lower cost. But in terms of the quality, there's sort of a return back to this artisanal tailoring. Now, it's not for everyone because like a a really well-made suit, one of the companies we visited on my trip in June was Keaton. In Naples. Well, we we they we visited their office in, in Milan. The show. Oh wow. Yeah. But they started in Naples, right? Yeah, Naples. Yeah. And everything is made in Naples in their facility, whether it's a bomber jacket, a suit, sneakers. They they make everything there. Uh, you know, the, and those suits start at eight thousand dollars. So that's really wow. not for the general public. They start. Yep. They start. Oof. So there there's a return back to Italy, especially because of the supply chain. Factories right now in Italy are at capacity and some of them are refusing work because they just don't have the capacity. Wow. So in Italy, it's not just about the artisanal tailor. You have high level, you know, like handmade is the top, top, say like Keaton, Atolini. Then you have mid-level and then you have sort of a lower level in the past the lower levels companies that made the lower quality garments went out of business because a lot of that work got sourced in china but now companies are coming back that used to make say garments in turkey or you know there were people making garments in ukraine that were in a hurry to get out of ukraine for obvious reasons Uh, so now taking garments for the garment production from asia back to italy settling on a little bit higher price but you're getting made in italy like in a lot of the retailers in the united states and menswear the label of choice the country of origin is italy so you can charge more money the retailers know that when they present the garment to their clients and it says made in italy all of a sudden there are a lot less questions asked because it's implied that the quality is very high. Now, one of your projects I'm reading in the show notes earlier, which I found very fascinating, was you were tasked, based on your decades of experience, by, a, as I understand, an Italian company to figure out how to make a higher quality suit in China. Right. And apparently you succeeded to the point where in blind competition – that suit actually beat a well-known U.S. brand of suits and another label from Italy. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So it's not impossible to create high quality at low cost in places like China. Is that the conclusion? Yeah, you could. It's all about the machinery and the technicians. You can buy the components. It's a, it's not just the shell fabric, which is the fabric that you see. It's also the components inside. So a lot of people, what they do 
uh, they'll buy expensive fabrics, but they skimp on the interlinings. And the interlinings, it's a comparison, like if you buy a Ferrari and if you skimp on the interlinings, it's like putting a four-cylinder engine in a Ferrari. Right. The price you pay for the interlinings have to be on par with the price you pay for the fabric, the shell fabric, for the, you know, the, the ability to drape well, the softness. It has to move and be in sync with the outside fabric. So you have the raw materials. You've got the machinery, either from Italy, Germany, Switzerland, some uh, excellent sewing machines from Japan. And then the most important part are the technicians from Italy. And when I was in China in 2003 to 2004, there was a whole wave of Italian technicians going to China uh, because Xenia was, I think, one of the first companies in Italy to actually go to China. My friends were uh, ex-employees of Xenia and they, they were the ones, uh, they were charged with uh, a feasibility on opening up a factory in China. And that factory is still there. It's a matter of really training, getting the technicians, because you can have all the ingredients in the world, just like a good chef. You know, you can have the best ingredients, but if you don't have that chef or person to put it all together, then all of that is for naught. So it was really the Italian technicians that came over that showed them how to properly put a sleeve in, how to press the lapels, how to give the garment the softness that it needs to replicate what they make in Italy. That's really fascinating in such a, in a globalized world, how you can sort of reinterpret even the idea of made in Italy, right? Because is something made in Italy if it's Italian materials, Italian technicians, Italian training, Italian mindset on these things, but it happens to be done by Chinese labor in a Chinese factory. I mean, it's not like the old days where you saw a label on and said made somewhere and you figured, well, most of that process came from that place. You know what I mean? Now it's a very complex idea. It's like you said, the, the idea of DOG, uh, labeling these things is, is complicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even in China, just like Italy, there are factories that are expensive, that do really high quality work, and there are factories that make, you know, low quality. Yeah. So wherever you travel around the world, wherever they make apparel, it's, you know, there's always a segment of high quality, middle, and low everywhere. Now, as I understand it, the idea of a Neapolitan cut suit, I've, I've looked really deeply into what makes a Neapolitan suit, the way the shoulders lay, the way the pockets are, the the lack of lining in a lot of it. It's very um, soft and unstructured. And when you kind of get into that and then you put on one of those jackets, you're like, wow, this, this really is different, right? But I also see you and I share a Sicilian heritage, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out. I was waiting. You... <laughs> uh, excuse me. To all my non-Sicilian friends out there, just one question they that's find each important other. to me. Across the room, they find uh-huh. each other. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, we do. Uh, so I had found that I think there's like a few tailors still in Palermo that have what is, I guess, traditionally a Sicilian cut, which is a little bit different. Do you know anything about that? Uh, not much because it's not terribly popular in the United States. Mm-hmm. I do know one thing about Italian tailoring. The further south you go, the lighter the garment becomes. Mm. And that is due to the climate. Sure. So when you buy like suits in Milan, they tend to be sturdier, more robust. And as you go south, the middle to Rome, south of Rome, it becomes lighter and lighter. The Neapolitan cut one of the main features is the high armholes. Having a high armhole gives you the freedom of movement in your arm. Hmm. And some people like it, some do not. However, a properly made custom suit with a higher armhole is not nothing like anyone would can buy off the rack. Thank you, Your Honor. No further questions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I made, because I'm also a custom tailor. I don't make it. I, I, I work with a company that does custom suits. And I made a, a blazer for my son when he was 16 years old. And, and we was at my wife's um, 50th birthday party. We walked into the restaurant in Manhattan. And my friend said, where did your son get that? I mean, that looks like it was made for him, fit him perfect. <laughs> they said, yeah, I made that blazer for him. And there's something to be said. And especially, you know, this is a, a, a whole other topic in terms of sustainability, but Custom-made suits are actually more sustainable than off the rack because then, you know, 
you have 100 jackets, say, sitting in a retailer. Out of 100 jackets, 50 get sold. Well, what happens to the other 50? Well, they go to TJ Maxx. Not every one of those jackets are sold. You know, then they start collecting frequent flyer miles, you know, and as they travel around the world, probably end up as fuel for furnaces. Wow. That's what's happening in Cambodia. All these unsold clothes are being used as fuel for furnaces, just burning them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And they're burning them and they're synthetics. And then synthetics, they melt and then the chemicals are in the atmosphere. So the industry right now is in a real, real panic to control this. Summer's here in full swing, and we want to know how you Italian-American for the season. The Italian-American podcast is partnering with Mediaset Italia for an exciting giveaway. Just snap a pic of your most Italian-American moment this summer, post it to Instagram, and you could win an exclusive Mediaset Italia picnic pack. The picnic pack includes a portable blanket, picnic basket, cheese board, plates, utensils, stackable wine goblets, and a wine opener. Everything you need for an aperitivo picnic under the sun. How do you get your chance to win? It's easy. Just capture what Italian summer means to you and post your picture to Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at Italian American and at Mediaset Italia USA. Then tag both accounts in your post. Don't forget to use the hashtag iHeartMediasetItalia so we can find it. Post your pictures between now and September 21st, and we'll pick 20 lucky listeners to receive their picnic pack in the mail. Open to residents of the continental United States? Visit Instagram at MediasetItalia for more information, terms, and conditions. That's a great topic because it's one that I had written a note that I wanted to talk about, this idea of sustainability and the environmental impact globally of fast fashion, let's say, because I don't think we think about the manufacturing process, even things, and I've learned this off my wife, Nicole, as she's gone through it, like, you know, dyeing materials and the byproduct that goes into water supply, or like you say, the chemicals as they burn these synthetics, and frankly, just the cost of transportation, burning fuel to move these things, ship these things, and then their place in landfills. Like, you know, we, I think we think, we're trained to think, it's great that you can go to uh, Zara or H&M, which are fine companies and, and, and have a great need and the clothes continue to get better. But you can buy something then that may not last you very long and get it cheap, be somewhere close to the fashion of the hour and then dispose of it. But that's got to go somewhere, right? How does the fashion industry, how does the textile industry, particularly as we're fighting increasing pricing, increasing cost of transport and travel and fuel and all of this stuff with global inflation, how do we become a, at least not positive, a less negative part of the environmental impact? It's really education. And for example, bamboo, as I've been teaching my students, the fabric bamboo is not really bamboo, it's rayon. Wow. Yeah. I've been teaching this for over 20 years. When you make rayon, part of the, the ingredients is a cellulose material, which is wood. So they chop up wood, they uh, mix it with chemicals, uh, caustic chemicals, and, and liquefies that cellulose that's fed through a spinneret, which looks like a miniaturized shower head, and you have fibers, you know, just like you make spaghetti. And so what happens is instead of using wood, they use bamboo because the bamboo fiber is not long enough to be spun into a yarn. So fibers have to have a certain length to be able to be twisted together to form a yarn. A naturally sourced bamboo fiber does not. And for apparel, at least, they, they might be able to spin it to make, say, carpet backing, mm-hmm. but not enough for apparel. So what they do is they substitute bamboo for wood. They then go through the process, mix it with chemicals, liquefied, goes through the spinneret, and all of a sudden they call it bamboo. Well, no, the U.S. government says you've got to call it rayon from bamboo. Hmm. Uh, I had called the Wall Street Journal on this years ago. I had mentioned that the fashion industry is really, at that point, was the blind leading the blind. And you, you should really write an article about this to be a responsible journalist. And they did. Wow. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons why people are fighting this is because they have not done their due diligence. They've, they've invested millions of dollars and now there's no recourse because in a court of law, you'll lose. 
what about the reusability of some of these things that are being breaking down? That's that's a good point. Uh, fibers, you cannot. It's almost impossible to have a fabric that is completely from recycled fibers because again, the fibers are too short. Mm. You need to have longer length fibers in order to twist them together. When you recycle garments, then you're shortening the length of the fiber. So even companies that say, yes, we use recycled fabrics that are recycled, only a percentage is recycled Hmm. because then you have to blend, say, new wool with recycled wool. And then also take a jacket, for example. The only part of a jacket that could be recycled is perhaps the sleeves or the back. The front of the jacket has fusing in it, even though it might have canvas. Once you put glue to the fabric, not recyclable. Any fabric with lycra or elastane, which is an, you know, an elastic fiber that makes, say, cotton stretch, not recyclable. Because then when you recycle the, the fabric or the fibers, the lycra and the elastane will then melt and jam the machines. Wow. Yeah. So... Mills in Italy right now have come up with stretch using no lycra and no elastane. What do they replace it with? It's a process. Like, for example, coiling the fibers tighter. Wow. By coiling them, you give more stretch. Uh, then there's chemical applications you could put down that makes the fabric stretch more. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and wool is natu- has a natural twist to it. So the more, when you coil it, it actually will, like, for example, if you, if you buy a really expensive suit in Naples, you'll never see wool mixed with lycra or elastane because the fiber is long enough and has what we call crimp, the, the bends and twists and surfaces of the fiber. So when you stretch it, it comes back into its natural shape. The shorter the fiber, the more stretch you need. So that's why if you make a, a cotton jacket, it doesn't fit the same way as a wool jacket can use the same pattern because the cotton fiber, it's straighter and doesn't have enough bends and curves along the surface of the fiber. So this is stuff nobody would think about. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, a, that's our job to think of all this. Thank goodness you are. Yeah, that, that's I mean, it's to me, besides the fact that you want to feel like you're getting bang for your buck and you're getting something that's comfortable, makes you feel good. Right. That's the point of fashion is to make you feel good as you go out and, and to cover all your needs and but at the same time increasingly we're becoming aware you want it to be something that doesn't have a a highly negative impact and a lot of this stuff does so it's it's great that people like you were thinking about it yeah and also part of the sustainability john uh is not just about chemicals and processes it's about uh, the labor are people who make are making these fabrics and garments pay the living wage is it 50% 50% of their living, you know, of a living wage, is it 100%? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, for example, the, the company I just mentioned in Como, um, Brati, they do have a small production facilities, say in Tunisia and I think in Eastern Europe, but those people are paid the same as though they worked in Italy mm. because they believe in the human capital. Ah, that's, I mean, that's so important. And I think that that forces the market, you know, if you're paying the people the same, right, if we acknowledge that you take the totally undervalued labor out of it, prices are going to go up reasonably. And it, I think it forces the consumer to make tougher choices about the clothes they wear instead of, you know, exploiting, frankly, the underpaid or in some cases even close to not paid labor that's right. going on in some of these countries. You know what I mean? Like it, we relish the choice and the affordability and the diversity of what we get to put in our closet. In some sense, it's almost like when you have a kid, right? You, have to, you can't give them uh, all the candy that they want, right? It's just not good for you. So maybe as the prices go up and as labor is valued and we lose some choice, it's better for everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, I know fast fashion is a recent trend, recent meaning in the past, say, 15, 20 years. But like in Italy, Italy never was about fast fashion. You know, people would buy their clothes every say, season, and then wear them more often. Like in the United States, we have this habit of wearing everything new every day. But in Italy, they, they do a lot of mixing and matching. Uh, they buy higher quality and they're more creative in how they put the outfits together. I have two questions I want to ask you. The first question is, for those people who are listening, who are like, wow, they want to suit like the jacket that you made for your son. Mm-hmm. Are you involved with a custom suit manufacturer? Yes. How do you get that kind of a tan quality in the U.S. here today? 
Well, we actually, I work for a company where they don't really promote their own brand. What we do is we use our knowledge because the people selling it have to have knowledge on how to fit a garment. And then we have swatches. We go out and visit the people, whether they're in their office or homes. Some of my colleagues have small offices or showrooms. And we measure them to the detail of how their arms pitch forward and and back, shoulders. And what should they reasonably expect to pay for that kind of quality? Um, I would say it's pretty much fabric driven. You know, like you could buy, you could use very expensive, but I would say probably a custom made suit with an opening price fabric, I'd say probably about $900. Wow. That's cheaper than I thought you'd say. It's because we don't have overhead of stores. Um, so this, so this wouldn't, this would be a totally bespoke suit. Well, it, the word bespoke really means that that pattern is only made for you and, and only you. So this right. Is, so that's my question. So you have set patterns. Yeah, we have set patterns, and what we do is we take the measurements, and then the measurements create a pattern. You know, using our Gerber system, and Gerber is one of the companies. In Vestronica, Gerber, they take your measurements. We have a base pattern. And then all the measurements we put in calculate, uh, you know, your posture. Is your head forward? Is your spine more erect? You know, your shoulders lower. John, we should go. You, you, you got to take care of us, Sal. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, we, we don't want to. No, we're not asking for freebies. We don't do No, that. no, no, no. That's... We don't play that game, but take care of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. What, what, what's the company called? Well, the the company's called Trinity. Uh, that's based in the U.S. with uh, U.S. owners. And we have 500 plus people that go around between the United States, uh, England, and also Europe. We're getting a lot of requests from Europe because a lot of people are just saying, we like how you fit. We like how you, you know, give client referral, not just referrals, but, you know, advice. Like, well, let's look at your wardrobe. Let's see what, you know, what could you use? This needs updating if you want. Wow. And everyone's an expert in fitting, which is great. And we're experts in fabrics as well. So I do a lot of training on fabrics and garments. Like I developed a custom bomber jackets, custom vests with knit collars and knit bottoms. Uh, I'm working on right now developing a field jacket. The whole idea is for everything to be custom. That's amazing. That's my gospel. Yeah. Yeah. You know why? Because I have a very broad chest and I hate shopping. I don't like shopping and going to clothing stores. And I think it's just easier because I rather have less things that fit me right. Right. Because I got rid of, I started with jeans. I had a closet. I must have had 40 pairs of jeans and none of them fit right. And I just, I got a custom pair made. I just took them all, gave them to, they have a veterans um, clothing program, right? For used clothes. I got rid of all my jeans and I got, so I have a limited amount, but what I have is comfortable. And to me, it's like it's an Italian mentality. If you're going to do it, do it right. Yeah, exactly. Even when I was younger in Sicily, you know, it was interesting. My mom, when I was growing up, when we would visit our relatives in Sicily, my dad was a retired master carpenter. My mom at the time was a seamstress. And my mom wasn't the type to go shopping at Macy's or Nordstrom's. I mean, that didn't exist for them, you know, in Bensonhurst. But when we went to Sicily, we'd go to the local tailor. And my parents would buy me like two or three suits, sweaters, and they were okay with that because they knew about the quality. They, as immigrants, they weren't sure about the quality that they were getting at Macy's or say Bloomingdale's. And this is my second question to you. How do you see the future of your industry as concerns Italy and the manufacture of garments, custom garments and manufacturing materials, the tug of war between manufacturing and Italy and manufacturing abroad in countries that have much cheaper uh, production costs. Where do you see this all in 20 years? Well, in 20 years, definitely Italy will, will still remain strong. That's for sure. Now, as far as the countries that are, have lower labor, it's, it's all a geopolitical issue. Like, for example, if, say if China invades Taiwan, that, that's going to be a major supply chain issue, not just for apparel, but for other products. Uh, think about if tomorrow you woke up and China said, we're not supplying you anything because we're at war. What do you do? Yeah. Uh, worry your valves, car parts, machinery. I mean, the Ukraine situation is bad, but you know you stop that that supply chain. So what people are trying to do right now is to divest to countries that are friendly to the U.S. 
or at least semi-friendly, you know, whether it's uh, Vietnam, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, that part of the world where the labor is still lower. You'll always have people making a lower price garments. Technology is starting to bring manufacturing back to the United States. But, you know, I, I still see Italy as a more of a romantic, artisanal, because when you think of Italy, you think of art, you think of the Renaissance, you know. So people are okay with that. And there's a whole culture in Italy of training young people to be artisans and tailors. So, uh, and especially Keton takes it very seriously. They have a whole training where they take the best of the best and then they hire them. So their, their motto is the best of the best plus one in Keton. So in 20 years, it, it'll be a struggle between parts of Eastern Europe, Indonesia, parts of Africa, making the lower priced apparel. Um, as advancement in machinery and technology is making custom easier and easier, because 20 years ago, if you said, hey, let's make a custom bomber jacket, we just didn't have the software, and now we do. So it's all about sourcing. You'll still have countries that produce high quality and produce more made to measure. How does the move toward yoga pants and the fact that everything's gone casual, right? Do you see that trend continuing? And even if it does, is it, are Italy's products on such a different level that they're not affected by those kinds of societal changes in dress? No. It, well, Italy, interestingly enough, it's not just about, say, formal wear. Italy does make a lot of those uh, yoga pants and flip-flops. They have pretty much any sort of category you could think of from men's and women's and children's, from dress, formal to casual. You could find that in Italy, like whether it's in Milan, Martina Franca in the south. Uh, you'll find a lot of those manufacturers. Um, I think, though, personally, and this is just my humble opinion, when you're dressed well, you you know, remember, you have to remember that communication, 70% of communication is nonverbal. Yeah. So when you put your, when you are dressed nicely, you're telling the world that you respect them. Like when you're at a meeting, uh, when you're, when you're visiting a mill or a client for the first time, I'll be wearing a shirt and tie with a blazer or a suit. Even though I don't have to, I do it anyway. It's because I'm showing them respect. That's the most Italian concept in the world. Yeah. I mean, it, listen. Bella, like, Bella my, Kumbari, right? Well, yeah. Like I, I remember like growing up in Brooklyn, if I wore jeans, my mother would smack me and say, get those off. You know, that, <laughs> like, yeah. the first thing I would uh, ask my mom if we were going somewhere to visit a relative's house, the first question was, can I wear jeans? I'm sure, I'm sure the answer was consistently no. The answer but. was consistently no, because yeah. at that time, uh, jeans was, you know, like you wore that out in the farm somewhere. So I, I think really, and I've told, I have two sons, they're adults out of college, uh, both working. And I stress heavily that they should always be dressed nicely when they go somewhere. Even if they say, well, you don't have to wear a suit or a blazer. But you know what? If, this, if a blazer or a suit is made well, it'll feel just as comfortable as a t-shirt or a sweater. I mean, to be, to be fair, Neapolitans might be the best tailors in the world, but Sicilians are always put together. Yes. I, I, <laughs> Very true. I, I was in yeah. Palermo because Neapolitans, we have our sloppy side too. Um, <laughs> I was in Palermo with John and my brother a number of years ago. And I walked into, we just walked into a church and there was a christening going on. And God, as my as my judge, I'm being honest with you. I thought it was a movie set. Yeah. I said, John, what are they filming here? I've never seen people so. And it was a it was a normal church in Palermo. I never saw people so well dressed in my life. From the tippy tippy toes, to the top of their heads, they were. It was stunning. It was absolutely stunning. So I have to say, there's something Sicilians do have a very strong, and if it's even shown in your architecture, you know, you do have a sense. You there's something in the Sicilian DNA pool that you do have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Those things that are pleasing to the eye. Yeah. Aesthetics. Yeah. Aesthetics, aesthetics, yes. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you reign on aesthetics. The Neapolitans reign on everything else, but you do reign on aesthetics. I mean, th th that's the beauty of this conversation, right? You have so many different types of art and architecture and inspiration, and just like the process of creating these beautiful garments, it's from the sourcing of the material through the manufacture of the machine. And to be fair, Italians from the Alps to Sicily have had and continue to have an amazing impact on all portions of that process. So 
Sal, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think their audience, our audience is going to gain a lot. So we're going to link you and your company in the show page, and everybody who is interested has a chance to see the work that you're doing now and uh, hopefully access some of these amazing uh, products because it is nice to have something that is made for you. It feels different. It lasts longer, and it's it's great impact on our environment. And now you know you've got a great Sicilian-American guide to take you through it. So we very much appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, and great to be part of your show. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure for us. Hope everybody out there has enjoyed this conversation as much as we have. Now you know where to source your stuff. Nothing like Made in Italy, and there's opportunity at every level. So we hope you've enjoyed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano 